Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together. We pray that you would bless as we take a few moments to look to your word. And we thank you for the blessings of the day thus far. And uh, we pray for your blessings throughout this time. And then later on with activities that take place, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to share a few thoughts with you about uh, us being the sons of God. Uh, and and uh, that passage in, in 1 John 3 kind of gives a springboard to it. But the Apostle Paul, uh, in chapter 8 of Romans, which is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, blessed chapter in that book. But he spends quite a bit of time giving us information about what it means to be the sons of God. And um, by the way, I don't use the term children of God. I know that some translations may change it to children of God, that sort of thing, uh, because they want, to, they want to change it to a neutral gender. But I believe that's a mistake. And the reason is, is that the significance of sons in the Bible, in the Bible times, um, you know, the firstborn son had a certain uh, inheritance and then the next child would have a different inheritance, lesser inheritance. And to me, it's more significant to, to say that we're all um, uh, the sons of God, whether we're a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, because if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we are on level footing with one another. It is not sons that are the better heirs of God and then daughters are somehow lesser. No, it's not that. It's the exact opposite of that. And so that all of us, and as we consider the Scriptures, I think you'll find this uh, to be the case, is that when God uses this term, the sons of God, He is not trying to make a distinction, but rather is bringing us all together under the umbrella, so to speak, of salvation in Jesus Christ, and that we are all equal heirs, in his sight. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and following, we have a, a number of things that God tells us about being the sons of God. And just for lack, for, for lack of, of time, uh, I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I'm going to basically give you thoughts from verses 14 to 23. And, uh, and you'll see that as I go along. But first of all, in verse number 14, we find that the sons of God are spirit-led. Spirit-led. The Holy Spirit of God. Co-equal with the Father. Co-equal with the Son. Uh, the, the, what we often call the third person of the Trinity. Not third because He is in somehow less than God the Father or less than God the Son. But they are co-equal. And simply because of the way language works, we have to say... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But, uh, but the truth is, is they are co-equal. Perhaps sometimes uh, you might have seen an illustration of the Trinity and, uh, and an il illustration that might be a circle or in some cases it's, uh, it's sort of a fish-shaped. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what you call that. What do you call that? Anyway. Ellipse. Ellipse. Thank you for that. And you'll have three ellipses. And you'll have one up here and then one on the side down here and one on the side down here. Or you might see three circles and they all overlap each other. And I had a theology teacher who said, 
He didn't use that illustration, and the reason that he didn't was because he said he didn't believe that it showed the co-equal status of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what he did was, he had to tell us because you can't see it visually, but he, he drew a circle that was the Father, and then on top of that he drew another circle that's the Son, and then he drew another circle for the Holy Spirit. And he said that's because they are equal. We don't want to visually portray them as being somehow the Father is greater than the Son is greater than the Spirit. We want to understand that they are so enmeshed, and this is one of those things that can be a little tough to understand for me, and that is to be able to say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, even though they have individual descriptions of, of roles and so forth in the Scripture, they are co-equal they are of one mind one purpose one will the Holy Spirit the Lord Jesus taught us in John chapter 14 and other places he taught us that the Holy Spirit was the one who came in to us and he seals us the Bible says unto the day of redemption he's like the, the earnest, the Bible uses um, the, the term earnest of the Holy Spirit. He's the earnest, or we might say the down payment. And if God were to default on your salvation, then the earnest would be lost. And the idea being that the Holy Spirit is abiding with us forever. So if I ended up being saved and then somehow got lost again and went to hell, the Holy Spirit would have to go with me because he came into me to abide with me forever. And that's, of course, what? An impossibility. But the Holy Spirit also came to lead us. Uh, When we, we sing a song, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. How is that leading actually taking place? It's by the Holy Spirit within us who's giving us guidance. One of the things that the Holy Spirit uses to give us guidance is the Scripture that we've read and that we've learned and that we've memorized. We give the Holy Spirit the tools, um, you might say, from the Scriptures that He will use in our lives to guide us. I come to a decision point in my life and I, I need to make a decision. And I want to make sure that I'm making the right decision that is pleasing to the Lord. How do I do that? How do I know? Well, I want to be attuned and yielded to God that His Spirit will guide me. And often what He uses is He'll use specific passages of Scripture that I've read or that I've learned, that I've been taught or maybe I have taught. And He uses that Scripture and it helps me to have discernment so I can make good decisions And do that which is in the will of God. So as the sons of God, we have the Holy Spirit to lead us. And then let's go on in chapter 8 again to the next next verse. For we have not received, verse 15, the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we say, Abba, Father. The doctrine of adoption in the scripture uh, is is not really the same thing as what we think of when we think of adoption in our world. And I'm not going to go real far into it, and I have a lot more to learn about this, I think, in my own life. But the idea is that when we are adopted into God's family, we are made full heirs. 
full sons, full children of God with all the rights and privileges and opportunities. In fact, the Bible will, will in, in just the next verse or so, is going to say that we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit when we get to that spot. But we have been adopted. Um, when I think of my salvation, I think, well, I've been born again. And I have. I've been, bo- I've been uh, become a, a child of God by spiritual birth. But I have also been adopted. And these two different perspectives that God uh, is, on the one hand, He is able to give me eternal life. He has the power to give me eternal life and to raise me, raise me my dead uh, body again one day unto everlasting life. But God also has chosen me. He's also made a choice. And when you accept Christ as your Savior, God says, yes, I accept you. Yes, I choose you. And so we are not only led by the Spirit of God, we're also adopted. And that tender term, Abba, Abba is, you know, you can say to a man, he's a father. But some people would say any man might be able to be a father, but it takes someone special. Maybe you've seen this on a sign. I think I have. It takes someone special to be a daddy. And the, the term Abba It's not simply describing someone who has the ability to be a father, but Abba is a tender term. It is a term, and God calls uh, upon us to come to Him with that, that relationship of love and tenderness and trust, Abba. Um, I had a cousin who one time told me, he said, he, he, he liked the translation of the Bible, and I don't condone this, but he said he liked the translation of the Bible that, that, uh, that had uh, Jesus praying daddy uh, instead of father. Uh, I thought that was humorous, but uh, the idea that, that that comes a little closer to it, though, in this passage, because that's the idea of what Abba is. It's a sweet and tender and affectionate term. Look on further. In verse number 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So we are Spirit-led, we're adopted, and we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. As we think about sonship, to be an heir of God, just to be an heir of God, just, just, you know, someone. Let's say someone uh, has passed away, and and they've got uh, five children, um, and um, I'm I'm a I'm a the youngest of, of five, and uh, I have one sister who who has preceded us in death by many years, but but there were five of us, and so let's suppose you've got these five heirs. Well, that doesn't say much about priority, does it? Just to say that they're an heir, because sometimes it works out that. One gets this, and somebody else gets that, and they're jealous because so-and-so got so-and-so this and that and the other thing. And uh, being an heir is a great thing, but God wants to take it further. And when he takes it further, he says, 
you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, who is Jesus? Now, when we think about Jesus, he's the heir of God. He is the uh, firstborn among many brethren. He is the only begotten son. He is special. He is wondrous. He is, when we think, oh, he's the heir, he is the heir of all things. And then we're, we're told we are joint heirs with Jesus. We are heirs with Jesus on equal footing with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not only heirs of God, but we are all elevated to that being joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's, a, there's a I can't tell you what the scripture is right off the top of my head. And I apologize for that. But there's a place where we are told all things are yours. All things are yours to, to us. Why? Because we're in Jesus. And who's Jesus? Jesus is the heir. And we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a, a fourth thought. I want you to see what our potential is. Look down at verse number 18. For I reckon, you can tell that Paul is from the south. He says, I reckon. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, the creature in this description is talking about us. All right? And our earnest expectation is that we, the creature, wait for the manifestation of the sons of God. There's going to be a time when we are, are released from the temporal uh, struggles that we face, uh, the weakness of our bodies, the weakness of our will, the, uh, the temptations that so easily beset us, and so forth. And those things that hold us back. And there's coming an unveiling, a time when when this physical life is over, and we would we would think, well, you know, it's it's either going to happen at the rapture, because those who know have known the Lord Jesus Christ have passed away, uh, their their spirits are with the Lord, but their body is somewhere somewhere else. It it may be that that they're uh, in a grave, but there are other people that have been lost at sea and they were believers and we don't know where the molecules of their body are and um, all these different things, even people that have been cremated. And we say, well, how, how's, how's the Lord? I don't know how the Lord's going to do it, but the Lord's going to bring that body back to life. Amen. And there's going to be a glory and a wonder. The glory which shall be revealed in us. I mean, if we think about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember it talks about the um, uh, when Jesus in the garden, Jesus met with, um, was it Moses and Elijah? Am I getting that right? Transfiguration. Huh? Transfiguration. transfiguration. Yeah, the transfiguration. And, um, and the disciples saw Jesus glorified. Now, I believe that Jesus still veiled Amen. his glory because we've been told that no man has seen God at any time in his full manifestation of glory. Moses got close, but he still didn't see it all because I think that if we did, it'd be like running 440 volts 
through a 110 white light bulb. Just, <laughs> I mean, it would just be so much. And so I don't even think the disciples saw the full glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they saw his glory and his transfiguration. And uh, his, his garments were white and glistening. And we, we can read in Revelation where John, the writer of that book, uh, talks about the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and that glory. And we imagine how wonderful, just think about how beautiful and wonderful the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is. That glory is the same kind of glory that's going to be revealed in us who know Christ as our Savior. And it's going to be a good thing. You know, we're, we, we all know where we have our shortcomings. Mine is partly my waistline. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to uh, that time when the Lord revolutionizes uh, the transfiguration. Uh, have you ever heard the term metamorphosis? You know, people, you know, in, in, in shows they'll talk about somebody morphed. They morphed from one thing into another. Um, and, uh, but a metamorphosis is going to take place. And God is going to unveil the glory that he has in store for us. And also the manifestation, it says the manifestation of the sons of God. The manifestation of what we have as potential, what's going to happen. Uh, verse 21 because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The word liberty there also means freedom. Now, I know that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are no longer under the bondage of sin. We have been, we have been released from, from the power of sin to enslave us. And that even though we have a tendency because of our, our natural lusts and so forth, we have a tendency to sin. We have God's strength and God's spirit to help us to resist those temptations. But they still come. We still have temptations. And yes, we've been, we've been removed from the power of sin. And, and, um, and we um, uh, um, are looking forward to the day when we will be removed from the very presence, the, the, the tendencies, the... There's, there's a good 50-cent word, propensity, which means your inclination to sin. All that's going to be removed, and we will have a type of freedom Amen. that we have never been able to understand up until then. Amen. Freedom to, I mean, just imagine if <clears throat> there were never any more temptations, period. <sighs> Finally. Amen. Can't you imagine just... Finally being able to say, it's gone. I no longer have, the, the, James talks about how we're drawn away of our lusts and enticed into sin. God's going to make it so that we won't have that anymore. There'll be no desire. No, nothing will be, there, nothing in us will be temptable anymore. In verse 22 for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we have, we have been saved. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
the first fruits of our salvation. We have the first fruits, but we, we're waiting for something else. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, or in other words, the redemption of our body. I'm waiting for the redemption of my body. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for God to take this body and change it from a body that is susceptible to so many, whether it's temptation, we've already talked about that, but also the the, the pains and the discomforts and the weariness and um, all the things that come with this mortality that we live. The redemption of the body. And then... Let me just go back and I'll just read this verse again from 1 John 3. But now verse number 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Now a little bit like a Sunday school class. Tell me some things about the Lord Jesus Christ that were unusual after his resurrection. Yeah, he walked through walls. He could he could enter a room that had locked doors. All right, he could walk through walls. What else? He ascended. He ascended. All right. We talk about gravity. But he could defy gravity just at will. What else? Yes. He appeared and disappeared. He appeared and disappeared. By the way, did Jesus eat after the resurrection? Amen. Yes, he did. He did. So we'll still be able to have fellowship and eat. and You'll be able to eat shrimp again. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ had certain characteristics. He could mask his identity so that people did not recognize him. Right. You remember he was walking with these two disciples and they ordinarily would have known who he was, but they didn't know who he was. And they're walking along, and he's saying, oh, really, what's, what's upsetting you so much? And they just started telling him all the things that happened with the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they, they said, hey, don't, don't keep traveling on. He said, come on into our house, and you can have supper with us. So Jesus goes in to have supper with them. And it comes to the point where it's time to bless the food, and Jesus uh, blesses the food, and they recognize him. And then he's gone. Now, this is a fun thought to me. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. And there's going to be a 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And during that time, there are going to be mortals on the planet. But there are also going to be us who are already transformed into our immortal state. And we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So imagine, this is the ultimate undercover. Because imagine that the mortals who are still sinners trying to get away with sinning against the laws and precepts of God, the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. And we are the enforcers. And they're trying to get away with something. They've got all the doors and windows locked. They're trying to get away with something. And then all of a sudden, you're there to enforce what the Lord has commanded. I think that's going to be pretty awesome. And there are so many things. I mean, I, I, I kind of I'm, I'm a bit of a sci-fi buff, and uh, I like to think about 
exploring God's universe. Do you know? That won't be anything at all to explore God's new heaven, new earth. So we're going to be transformed and we will be like him. And of course, there's so much more that we all could sit and think about, about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we're going to be like him in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our motivations. And, you know, the Bible says that the scriptures are going to be continued to be searched throughout eternity because there's such depth. It's not just all on the surface that we say, oh, I've become a master of the Bible. What's the next book? No, the Bible has richness that will continue for eternity. Amen. The final thing, and I'm just going to turn to this passage and then I'll be done. But in the in the Gospel of John, chapter number one, we have a, a wonderful description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in talking about him, beginning of verse number nine, he says, That, speaking of of Jesus, uh, speaking of the true light, that was the true life which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a son of God. If you haven't accepted Christ yet, accept him. And become one of the sons of God. Because we've got so much to look forward to. And there's a lot more, I'm sure, that we could all discover if we just spent the time. But isn't it rich and isn't it wonderful, the things that we have to to enjoy and look forward to and hope for and patiently await that God's going to do with us and in us and through us in in all eternity. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for the opportunity. We pray that you would bless uh, the balance of our day. Thank you for your word and the encouragement it is. Thank you for what you have in store for us. Help us with hope and anticipation to look forward to these things, and may they motivate us to serve you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.